0: i refer to data as oxygen. If it's in the room and you're well ventilated, you don't even know it's there. If you start taking oxygen out of the room, you won't notice it initially, your company will still function, but slowly or surely, you're going to start slowing down, you're going to be sluggish. And if you don't understand your first party customer day, and if you don't take it seriously, you're starving your organization of oxygen, you're just not aware
1: of it. Welcome to the Data Chief. The Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. Today's guest is Jacques Van Kirk, the global CEO of Wonderman Thompson Data. Jacques is one of the founders of Acceleration, a premier marketing tech consultancy, and has long been considered a pioneer in the digital marketing space. Jacques joins Cindy to discuss why data is not the new oil, as many in the industry like to say. But instead, the new oxygen and the advantages of focusing on your customer's terms over your own. They also explore how fostering a culture of curiosity inspires innovation and keeps you ahead of competition. Plus, Jacques shares why encouraging diversity of thought within your organization plays an essential role in leading to unexplored and untapped markets. All of that and more on today's episode of The Data Chief.
2: The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for you to use search and AI to analyze your company's data, lightning fast. Business people at companies like Walmart, Hulu, and 7-Eleven use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can too. Learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.
3: This week on The Data Chief, I'm pleased to introduce Jacques Van kirk from Wonderman Thompson. Jacques, welcome. Thank you, Cindy. So Jacques, I understand you're dialing in from the East Coast today?
0: I am, I am. It's it's change, strange not to be on a plane and constantly in a different location speaking with people, but um, it's nice to actually be rooted in a place for a while, um, even amidst all the mayhem and the turmoil uh, around us.
3: Yes. So, me too. I'm New Jersey. Where are you calling from?
0: Uh, Connecticut.
3: Okay. But I don't detect a Northeastern accent.
0: No. No, I'm far from home. Uh, I grew up in in, in South Africa um, and then spent um, 10 years in the United Kingdom. And uh, it's my fourth year in the United States now.
3: Okay, so so we, ha- we have a lot to share. Okay, before we get to data, I have to, our listeners won't be able to see this, but hopefully you can see this oh, while we record I, this. Can I you see that? that.
0: Oh, that is, <laughs> that is so dear to my heart.
3: I know. I am sharing at 1995 South Africa water cooler when my husband flew for the day, my English husband, we were in Switzerland, but he flew for the day to catch the Rugby World Cup.
0: Which I have to say to the listeners, South Africa won. And, um, <laughs> we just did last year, but it was an amazing moment in time. I, I was there. I shared that moment with your husband.
3: Oh, good. Maybe you were sat next to each other.
0: Maybe, maybe. Yeah. It was a, it was a wonderful moment. It was a wonderful moment of unification for the country as well, which actually is quite poignant given everything that's going on. You know, it was, you know, the transition from a minority rule and an oppressive apartheid government into, a democratic South Africa, uh, and it was a peaceful transition when we were at the brink of civil war almost. So, it was very poignant, and the Rugby World Cup kind of was the was the epitome of the nation coming together. Yes. So, you know, our, our national team played for more than just the World Cup at that point. They played to try and unify the nation.
3: Well, they, it was so important, profound. The movie Invictus.
0: Yes. Side stories. I went to university with a lot of the rugby players. We were at the same time. We were contemporaries of each other. Um, so the, the character that, uh, Matt Damon plays from Tropino, he was my university rugby team captain. So.
3: Wow. Okay. Wow. Wow. <laughs> now I, now I feel like I have to tell the producer to stop recording. I have to go get my husband because he's, he's an ex rugby <laughs> player, but never at that level. Um, and, mm-hmm. and doc, you and I ha- are meeting for the first time, but as you bring up the topic, if you don't mind the times in the U S. The year 2020 i thought covid was going to be the worst thing mm. and now we have the racial protests the death the murder of george floyd and mm. you you lived this in your mm. country yeah. i guess how it how is a company as a person as a data person how do we get on with the course of business and yet there's a lot in the world going on
0: yeah i think um empathy and tolerance is is critical uh, you know, our role in in data is fortunately I'm in the marketing and um, communications industry. So we do a lot of work around understanding human behavior and trying to give our clients as much human insight as we can. And I think just trying to understand people better. You know, often we look at what what makes us different and what divides us as opposed to what makes us the same and what are the commonalities to bring us together. So we, we try hard to do that. We do a lot of kind of qualitative research as well to really help our clients try to understand so that they function in culture properly uh, and that they are not seen to be tone deaf or have inappropriate positions at this point in time. So it is it is really, it's not easy, to be honest. Uh, and as a company, uh, I'm very fortunate in that, you know, Wonderman Thompson so- probably sounds like two names you may know or not know, Cindy. It's the yes. major of two iconic names in the world of advertising. So, so Wonderman was founded by Lester Wonderman, who wrote literally wrote the book on direct marketing and database marketing. And then Thompson is J. Walter Thompson, who founded the very first advertising agency uh, in Manhattan 125 years ago. So the merger of these two entities and Wonderman Thompson gave us an opportunity to to reimagine what does a marketing and advertising agency look like for the 21st century. And we thought it through completely from the values, how we run, what we want to represent in the world, you know, and it's run by an an amazing CEO. Her name is Mel Edwards. The whole executive team is very diverse, diversity of thought, diversity of people. So because we're a global company and we work, you know, 17,000 employees um, all over the world, you know, so we deal not just with the very difficult issues that's happening in the United States right now, but we have colleagues in Hong Kong who are going through yeah. a very difficult time. Um, so South Africa, my home country is still dealing with very difficult things. So, so we've learned just by our global experience to be um, very considerate, but we've learned that the more we, we root ourselves in culture, in markets, we try to be as understanding and empathetic as possible. Uh, and always have a position of we're in it together, and to just remain as positive as possible is kind of how we're approaching it, just kind of um, culturally.
3: Yeah, thank you, Jacques. And to clarify, so there's Wonderman Thompson, and you are the global CEO of Wonderman Thompson Data. Correct. So tell us about that division.
0: So um, it's it's a, it's a, it's an amazing role, and it's an amazing job because I, I mentioned Lester Wonderman, who literally wrote the book on. Direct marketing and database marketing. So there's the specter of Lester's Le- legacy kind of hangs over us in a way because you know he's he's the man who's such an icon in the industry. Uh, but the nice thing is because we've kind of merged with with Thompson, we have an opportunity to think about the application of data in a completely new way, and that's what makes it so exciting. I, I kind of joke with my 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 colleagues. I've got about a team globally uh, of, of of just under a thousand data scientists, data engineers, advanced analytics folks, marketing technologists, creative technologists, data storytellers <laughs> um, that I work with. So I've got an amazing team and capacity, and we see it across so many clients and segments and sectors that that it is truly... I feel blessed to be in this position. But at the same time, we we have to be so kind of ahead of the game, because if you're in the world and I joke and say we're in the world of human insights and kind of future consumer behavior, if you're in that space, you, you can't sit back, you have to move so fast because you're, you know, the data that that that's off the back of consumer and customer behavior moves in real time. The strategies and the way we, we've applied marketing three, four, five years ago is out to date last year. And if you think about how behavior has just changed this year alone because of COVID-19, because of what's happening in culture, whether it was in Hong Kong and United States, you need to move so fast in terms of right. how you apply data, look at data. So no moment you've got no moment to sit still and every day is completely different.
3: Yeah, so 25 years as a data person love this. Uh, you do have very nuanced, detailed, personalized data, I love the, or well, I don't know if I love it, the anxiety index (laughs) that you create. Where is that data coming from and what is that?
0: So the anxiety index is uh, something we've done just over 20 years now. We built that specifically out of the United States initially and we've we've now applied it in a couple more markets. It came out of the original tensions that emanated around the Gulf War. And uh, our research team, Realize that we need to understand how people are feeling a little bit more closely. So we started doing that through um, surveys and we now do these surveys on a regular basis to track anxiety levels. And whenever we, we see a, a moment and point in culture or in society that we, that we anticipate and we can see it, that people are anxious, we measure it again. So, and we keep that data longitudinally. So we've tracked it since the Gulf War 20 odd years ago. We've tracked it through. Different cycles, whether it was the SARS pandemic, Ebola, we've tracked it through financial crises, we've tracked it through 9/11, and all the different instances to track what's happening. Um, and it's kind of quantified market research. You know, we go to about you know 4,000 people at a time and, and get their insights. But the thing is, we've done this over time, so it gives us a very good understanding of how people feel. What's interesting about this point in time. You know, Mark Truss, my chief research officer says a beautiful thing. He says, in the United States, the Americans have a capacity to deal with one anxiety at a time. <laughs> but at the moment, we're in a perfect storm of you have an anxiety around health and the pandemic. There's an anxiety around the economy. And then there's this socio-political anxiety that's playing out right now. And it's in an election year. So we've never, we're in completely uncharted territory here where we're seeing three anxieties that we would usually track individually coming together in one place. And that's, you know, all the data is off the charts. It's just spiking yeah. in terms of what we're seeing. Yeah. And it's counterintuitive. People who are actually the most anxious right now are young people. It's the youth. You know, it's not, you'd, you'd think it's elderly people who might worry about their health or it's people, you know, middle age with young children. But it's it's the younger generation. It's a college. It's it's uh, the college graduates and people kind of eighteen to twenty four year old because they feel that they're inheriting this world right now.
3: Yeah, and interestingly, I read that quote, Mark's quote. I I think in in March or April, just when we were at the very beginning of the pandemic and now we have multiple factors going on. I will say in our house I have two college age kids or not even college. One just had started her first job, unemployed, mm. <laughs> mm. scared, a little bit scared mm. now um on the west coast. So it it is a lot for that generation. We debate who's more anxious, um the ret- my retired parents who you know, at least economically, they're fine, but health not. Where does the data come from? Like some I know is social, but the other thing is how does a business person or a marketer turn that data into actionable insights?
0: That is is probably the hardest job of most marketers is actually most of my clients, the last thing they actually need is more data. They actually feel they're drowning in the data or they feel an inability to synthesize the data and to your exact point, how to orchestrate and activate it is is probably fifty percent of what my team does day in and day out. So a lot of it a lot of it is around understanding the maturity and aptitude of our clients, organization first and foremost. You know, in the data and we're very specific, Cindy, around what data when when I talk data, you know, data is a as a, as a broad church right? yes, yes so so when i when I talk about data, we firstly make sure our clients and their broad organization know exactly where we 're going to add value, and it 's really for us it 's where the custom experience and the brand come together, and that 's where the rubber hits the road for us, So what we try and do is understand the maturity of our clients organization more broadly around that, and then the aptitude to innovate or to improve around it and And it would start with some clients by literally help them re reimagine their vision for how they use data. We could help them design their data principles, or we could do really the foundational work of help build help them build their data framework, build a data model. um Some clients are really strong on that, and we don't even have to worry about it and Then it's far more on okay how do we get data flows going, how do we improve your data workflow? How do we then uh, kind of democratize the data and get that activated and, and kind of work in kind of this omni-channel, multi-touch environment, which increasingly is where the table stakes are? If you if you're only using data in one channel or in a couple of channels um, and you don't orchestrate and bring it together um, around the customer experience, you're you're about to be disrupted by somebody who's either doing it better or is coming at you and is going to improve on that custom experience using data and insights in a kind of a more progressive way than you are. So that, that's a lot of the work we do for our clients.
3: Right. So there's a lot in there, Jacques. Um, so it's it's the aptitude. And I'm going to say most organizations that I talk to are middle of the road in their maturity. There may not be yeah. the culture to act on the yeah. insights, but let's take an ideal use case. Maybe if you paint a picture of what does good look look like, and if you want to choose a customer example while being anonymized, otherwise I'll tell you some of my favorite brands. But what does good look like, and how how do they use the data?
0: Yeah, I'll almost picture my ideal picture for you, my my dream client scenario, and okay. then I'll talk about a couple of categories I think which would, would which would be yeah. helpful. So so for me, the ideal client it has a culture of curiosity. And I think if you have a culture of curiosity, the other things that we often talk about follows. Experimentation, (laughs) you know, uh, more advanced analytics, uh, you know, getting into cognitive sciences or applied behavioral sciences. But if you do not have a culture of curiosity, you're just not going to get there. And, And curiosity, I think, will lead naturally to an organization that says, let's test and learn. Every, every failure is a learning. I mean, th- we have some clients that are close to that, not completely, but 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 they do go there. Ironically, they're actually the companies that do better and are better at growth. Right. You know, you can see the clients who are struggling and on the back foot and focus on savings and efficiencies are the ones who actually don't have a true culture of curiosity and true learning um, and experimentation. That's my ideal client.
3: That's great, and maybe you'll find it reassuring. A, a CXO roundtable that I facilitated last week; their number one priority was customer experience. Yeah. So yeah. at least at least there's a focus there, but the experimentation can also bring failure mm. and a fear of failure. Mm. So, do you think that's more culture or budgeting for experimentation?
0: I don't think it's a budgeting thing. I often think it's more, I think it's more fear of failure. I think we still live in many organizations where the better they get at certain things, the more they become siloed almost by default. Um, so let's say you become famous for something like customer relationship management or customer service. Then all of a sudden that becomes a silo in its own right. And then all of a sudden, let's say e-commerce becomes important. But then you've got two different teams trying to work at it in a different way or, or you're, you're a strong sales organization. But as a consequence, that's what made you famous. But maybe something like customer service <laughs> is subpar. So yeah. It's not good. So, so it's, it's, it's very interesting to try and work with our clients to, to break through these silos. So a lot of what I do is kind of silo busting.
3: Oh, really? You know,
0: and, and, and we talk about um, data democracy and, and citizen data science. Because you you know, your customer doesn't live in a swimming lane uh, and neither should your organization. So there are very few organizations who truly organize the entire company around the customer. They either design around technology or they design around their business units or they design around the operating model. They don't truly design around the customer.
3: I agree. And I'm, and now you're bringing me into picturing bad. (laughs) So let's go back to picturing good and maybe we take that vertical. I mean if you want to go sports, but if you go rugby i'm going to tell you right now it's going to be the England team or we could do American football or or something Give me um so so I see the data i'm orga- mm. organized around the customer. Mm. How am I going to use your data
0: yeah so 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 what we do is we help our clients on two on two levels Wonderman uh has a lot of proprietary data and we've built an identity graph and and we've been doing this for over over fifty years. And we've modeled that data over over a long period of time. And we use that graph to help our clients view their first party data as one of the most critical strategic assets available to them as a business. And it's often completely under leveraged. Um, so, so we'll help our graph is just really there to help our clients keep their data fresh. Um, so let's say, for example, somebody moves uh, and they uh, are now in a new postcode. How do we help our clients automatically know that? Or somebody's changed their phone number or their email address. So we use our graph to help our clients append and keep that data fresher. That's actually unbelievably important if you want a proper consent framework and a proper consent based relationship with your client. And in this world of privacy and respect, you kind of have to stay on top of your first body data because if you don't, it gets the situation gets worse a lot quicker because you lose touch with your customers. So a lot of us through to our clients and saying, look, your customer first party data is the most important asset you have as a marketing organization. And you have to a keep it fresh (laughs) and and B, you have to keep investing in it and you have to keep modeling it and you have to keep experimenting in it because that's where all the learnings and innovation happen. So that's a lot of the work we do um, is around that kind of first party data. A lot of clients would come to us and say, help us with a churn model or help us improve our acquisition. But we often try to subtly pull that back and say, well, there might be something in your customer data already that tells us what is the problem around churn, as opposed to just building a churn model, right? Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, you're chasing acquisition, but if you just tweak the dial on, on, on retention, uh, you can invest... 5x more on acquisition but let's just fix that first. Yeah. You know so it's it's very interesting when we kind of have those conversations with the clients of what their requirements are. But back to your point about which clients are doing it well certain categories do it really well. If you're in financial services or in insurance you understand the value of your customer really really well. If you're in, in consumer packaged goods for example that is a far more difficult conversation. So at the data level we'll find with the more mature companies around things like acquisition and churn we talk more around kind of what I would call edge use cases that are unbelievably important to them. So understanding the motivations of their clients better, understanding the emotional tone of how that brand needs to interact with the client. But if you're, in, let's say, for example, a consumer packaged good company, try to understand the value of data. If you're selling, I don't know, let's use an example, a bar of soap or, or nail polish. To go and build a huge first-party consumer data asset, how are you going to get the return back on a unit that has got such a small margin? Actually, that's pretty hard. But if you as a CBG company thinks about all the products you sell to that person or to that household, and the value of using data in that instance, and that becomes a lot more interesting, and then you start getting into the world of, okay, how do I use data for my direct-to-consumer strategy versus working with my mass retailers or... Working through e-commerce or increasingly through social commerce. So, so that kind of understanding of data, both offensively and defensively, because a lot of our clients are being disintermediated either through big e-commerce companies like Amazon, as you could imagine. If you're, if you're, you know, most people are being disrupted by Amazon at some yes. level. Yes. Right? Yes. You know, equally, you if you're in China, it's 10 cents or, you know, every, every market or region has their massive disruptors. So how do you use your own data and your own estate? To kind of fight back without being completely disintermediated, and that's that's a lot of the work we do around helping them understand their first-party customer data better, so that you know they don't become overly dependent on Facebook for their marketing campaign data or YouTube or, or or Amazon for all their e-commerce data and fulfillment, you know, or traditional retailers like Walmart, as an example. But but that's around something like CPG or some kind of similar categories. Uh, it's very different for somebody in auto right now or on. Or in hospitality, as an example, which right now is a whole, whole different um, painful reality.
3: Yeah, a bit. Yeah, a bigger, a bigger pause um, in hospitality for sure. I think auto recovering a bit better. But what's interesting to me is you talked about the graph and understanding the customer, but you use some words that business people cringe at, but that comes a lot in our industry: um, master data management or as as one of my favorite authors, Jill Dushay, her book Customer Data Integration. So, how do we blend the practical reality that you need this data clean? It really is master data, and yet, and make the business care about it. Not make it sound like a boring technical. Let's go clean up all our addresses.
0: Well, wow. Cindy, so thanks for bringing that up, right? Because what what I often find is clients would focus on master data management, sometimes reticently, or they'll focus massively on kind of product information management, and the customer's nowhere in the picture. The the number of projects I've walked in where a company's gone on a massive data transformation project or shift massively into the cloud or the hybrid cloud, and they've spent millions of dollars, hundreds of millions sometimes on on doing this across their organization. And then you say, all right, where, where's the customer activation or customer experience use case in this experiment? Well, initiative. And it's not, it's not in there. So, so viewing your customer data as part of your overall master data management strategy or how you get your first party customer data as part of that equation is often lacking. And I'm still surprised to this day how lacking it is. You know, a colleague of mine once had to say to a senior auto executive, but you can't market to a VIN number. 'Cause they could tell us everything about the vehicles, where it is, where it is in production, yeah. what color it is, how people are configuring it. But we didn't know who the people were, right? So how do you how do you map that? Because they were so dependent on dealers and warranty fulfillment people that, that their understanding of the customer it was just nowhere nowhere in that. And and and, and this plays back to your point around truly when you go down master data management, you know, is the customer truly part of that strategy? And how do you make that part and parcel of that consideration?
3: Yeah. So do you think, is it a matter of lack of understanding? Or as you mentioned, privacy? Is it? No, we, we can talk about the car, we could talk about the product. But now, as soon as I talk about who bought it and their demographics, we get into privacy issues.
0: Yeah, there's there's a bit of both in uh, in, in play. Uh, you know, I, I think firstly, what's happened a lot uh, in the world of marketing is marketers have become a little bit, a little bit lazy. In in a strange way, with the birth of digital, we've tried to use cookie-based data uh, as proxies to do the hard work. Because it was so easy to just get all this cookie data and all this contextual and behavioral data and to think you understand your customer, but actually you truly don't because there's no persistency in the data. There's no true understanding longitudinally of that data. It's not mapped to any, any data in the offline real world, right? It's yep. very rarely mapped to the household or to yeah. a physical phone number or a, a physical address, right?
3: Yeah. And purge those cookies when you feel like the ads are getting creepy.
0: <laughs> Completely, right? And now because of privacy, there's this kind of little perfect storm happening. You know, already if, if, if you're heavily invested in the Apple estate for a long time through Safari and others, you couldn't even in YouTube now, you know, third party cookies are highly limited. Chrome's going to turn it off soon. So there's a small window They've actually with the outbreak of COVID-19, they've actually delayed turning it off because they don't want to impact the market so hard. So, so Google's actually been quite considerate around that. But, but marketers who've kind of just been a little bit lazy around it and just use cookie data as proxy data for understanding their customers better are now finding themselves in the world where we have GDPR in Europe. We've got CCPA in California, which is, you know, um, coming on stream. There's more legislation coming, frankly, and probably, at some stage, we'll have some federal legislation around this in the in, in United States. And I've heard some horror stories and I've experienced that where clients are now so paralyzed that they've literally been deleting customer data just because they haven't thought it through.
3: <laughs> and right? and yet, yeah, yeah, no, I know. It's, it is, they're, they're worried about it and, uh, really, in financial services and insurers, some some data chiefs, generically calling them that, um, have said, you know, we want to personalize, but we feel really constrained in being able to do that. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's valid? Like, do they have the data to really be able to personalize or don't they?
0: Yes, and personalization is a much maligned word. You know, I, I'm I'm very cautious around the word personalization because personalization has many, it's a bit like the word data, <laughs> right? Yeah. Personalization can be, I can personalize colors. Mm-hmm. I can personalize font. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, what I would almost call cosmetic personalization that goes on in the industry. I can personalize different pictures that I show you or different headlines as part of marketing.
3: Does micro-segmentation... Is that the right word?
0: You, that's the right word. You, okay. You're, go, you're, go, you're going for the jugular, yeah, which is good. Bring it on. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so can we get to micro-segmentation? Well, I, I, because you also mentioned alternative data, can we get to micro-segmentation with the data that an organization owns? So let's say financial services, the bank, the investment banker, the mortgage underwriter, they have that internal data. Yeah. Can they do micro-segmentation? And what do we do with the external data, what they know about yeah. me from other data sources?
0: Yeah, yeah. The, the answer is firstly, yes, you can. I, I want to come back to that though, Cindy, because it doesn't always mean you should. Uh, and I'm, I'm personally yeah. quite vocal about that. So, so I do really want to just explore that again in a second. But I think to your point about banks and, and categories where they have so much data, I actually think they've been quite thoughtful about it but they themselves have become so big. Often the insurance arm isn't speaking to the retail banking arm, isn't speaking to the wealth management arm. I know. So they- (laughs) Is this how you spend your
3: days? Uh, Yeah, this is how we spend our days. Uh, How have we not met before?
0: (laughs) Yes, exactly, right. So so they have their challenges. So so yes, why why rush to micro-targeting if you're gonna do it in isolation? Rather get a proper, more holistic view of your customer across your different business units and just be more relevant. And add more value as opposed to doing micro targeting i mean that i have this conversation day in and day out right
3: yeah well yeah me too so so wealth let's say the wealth management doesn't want to share the data with the the checking and savings and to even attempt to merge these siloed data sources and siloed organizations it just feels like mission impossible
0: yeah, but, but uh, you know, where you have to have empathy for their position is because it's how they originally engage and get consent and manage their permission w- with the client. Those those things were never thought out to be across the whole enterprise. Uh, and that's often when we actually come in with the clients. That's why I talked about aptitude so early on. Do you really have the aptitude to go and change all of that?
3: <laughs> well, right? I would call it, yeah. So what's interesting, I have a data and analytics maturity model and I look for indicators yeah. Are they ready? And part of its culture, part of its talent, completely. Yeah,
0: but but if you think of other other categories, the, the the disruptors. Think about some of the the world's leading streaming media companies. You know, you know, you can think about you know the the large social networks, the Cents, the facebooks, the googles i mean they know way more right and they have so much data and in, and if i have to call one out in fact apple has a lot of data but they are the, probably the most considerate in terms of how they apply it and, and and what they do with it. And as you know, they've actually turned privacy into a brand attribute, which I really yes. respect, which I truly, really respect. Uh, and I think a lot of marketers should say, how do I turn the management of consent and permission and privacy into a competitive advantage for me, not shy away from it and say, oh, CCPA is gonna be a problem, GDPR is gonna be hard. Uh, therefore let's just not do it. That, that, that to me is just opting out, frankly. You know, I, I, I refer to data as oxygen, right? If it's in the room and you're well ventilated, you don't even know it's there. If you start taking oxygen out of the room, you won't notice it initially. You can still move around. Your company will still function, but slowly or surely you're going to start slowing down. You're going to be sluggish and either somebody's going to come and um, overtake you or, you know, save you, (laughs) acquire your business or your business is going to die. Uh, and if you don't understand your first-party customer then and if you don't take it seriously, you're starving your organization of oxygen. You're just not aware of it.
3: Jacques, I feel like that needs a pause. No, seriously, because in the industry, you know, so they like the tagline, data is the new oil. I think data is oxygen I like that
0: the problem with oil as well as a commodity, and if I if you have to use the, the the oil analogies you can find data you can refine data you can move it upstream downstream that's not respectful from my world it's the customer's data who owns the data anyway all right it's really the customer's data right
3: well yeah the per the in, the, if we're talking banking it is the consumer.
0: Com- completely. Uh, absolutely. Right? So, yeah. So, so, and the last thing we all want is, is like an oil spill, right? Which is a data spill, which is a hack, a breach, uh, inappropriate use. You could argue micro targeting done badly and pure, poorly is almost like um, a little bit of an oil spill. You know, it's like somebody, you know, taking you are going to yeah. like a full serve gas station and they're spraying fuel all over your vehicle.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, so I don't, I don't like the, I don't, I personally, The data as oil obviously has helped the industry, but, but for, for our application around the customer and for marketers and brands, I like to be a little bit more respectful and thoughtful about, about data more as oxygen. It should be behind the scenes. It should be applied respectfully. You know, just because we can weaponize through technology and data, uh, you know, it doesn't mean we should be retargeting people all the time and do micro targeting. The the great Lester Wonderman had a great saying. He said, he said, advertising is an invitation to a relationship. But when you then have that relationship, it doesn't mean you have a right to that relationship. Yeah. And and you should rather be relevant than try to have a relationship as a brand. Yeah. I think a lot oftentimes marketers and and I'm and when I say marketers, I, I I'm a marketer myself, right? We're there's a little bit of hubris assuming that people will love our brands and they'll love our advertising and they'll love the marketing. But all they actually want is relevance and value on their terms. So so I, I, back to the point about personalization, I told you I was going to come back to that. To me, it's far more important to be personally relevant to that person than to, do, to drive personalization and micro-targeting at them.
3: Yeah, I like that. I, I call it with them. What's in it for me? I, I, will, I will share my data. Healthcare, good example. I will share my data if you make it better. But if I share it with the insurer... So whether that's the dongles in your car, how fast are you driving? If it's going to make my life better, I I say people will share it.
0: Yeah, there's got to be a value exchange all the time.
3: Now, um, I want to come back to something you referred to, Apple being a trusted brand taking care of that data. We do have on the other end of the spectrum, certain industries where trust has been broken, a- according whether you look at Price Waterhouse Coopers surveys or um, the Edelman Trust Barometer, that for example, Telco, who we so desperately need in work from home, that there's been a loss of trust because they don't respect the data. How do you handle that, or do you even agree with that?
0: Yeah, it's 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 interesting, right? It's, I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that, Cindy. We 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 did a survey around privacy uh, back back end of last year. To find out exactly how do how do people feel about uh, data, and and a couple of things jumped out for us. What they're most concerned around is location data and biometric data, and then we asked them which categories do they trust the most and the least. So, so interestingly, they trust categories like advertising the least. So people like me, to be honest, I, um, I
3: didn't want I did see that, but I didn't want to put you on the spot with me. But as you did it, go ahead.
0: Yeah, it's, it's okay. You know, we, we try to be more thoughtful and make it better as opposed to worse, because I think people's annoyance with advertising is not relevant. It's speaking at them, as opposed to everything that we've just talked about. So, you know, you know, so hopefully one of them and Thompson are, are one of the good guys in all of this. But but back to that point, what what people and there's, there's a little bit of um, conflict in the in the data that we saw from the re- from the research. People will say things like, "Oh, they trust health insurance brands and as a category, for example, more." And then they would take companies like, let's say, Google or Facebook or kind of the big social media networks, and they're kind of middle of the road. And big tech was kind of middle of the road. Telco was just kind of right of center of that, a little bit less trust, but actually a little bit ambivalent about them. And I think to your telco point, I think people know that they're a utility that they really need. But if you think telcos, unfortunately, and that's why they're all trying so hard to to merge with media companies and to start adding additional value on top of their platforms, they've kind of become dumb pipes without being too, too crass because they've allowed people to build application and more value on top of their environments, actually using first body data better than themselves. So so I know uh, we work with a lot of clients in media and telecommunications and they're acutely aware of this. And they're actually working really hard right now to try and change that whole dynamic to be far more customer centric, to add yes. more value. You know, just think about um T Mobile as an example. They've done some amazing work uh in terms of being customer centric, adding value on top of their network. So so I think uh, it depends on which category and which brand you talk about mm-hmm. and in which market. Yeah. But I see diff- very many different flavors of this, if, if, if that makes sense. So I think it's yes. a bit more nuanced, but
3: um, yeah. Uh, yeah, de- definitely. I- I'll spare you from telling you who my favorite um, telco brands are. But, <laughs> 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 uh, but you know, you talked about who owns the data and privacy. And there was a quote um, from you in, in a newspaper uh, recently ab- about how consumers have to opt in. And some of the privacy opt-ins are so long. I work in tech, I get it. And like, I don't want to read it. And one of the groups we sponsor, Girls Plus Data, actually asked, a middle school person said, do they intentionally make it so hard that nobody understands it and nobody reads it?
0: Oh, Cindy, I gave a big sigh there. Um, I think you might have heard that, but um, there's no excuse yeah. Honestly, we have so much advances in technology and ways to manage consent and permission in a more uh, kind of near real time way. But you're right. There are definitely players in the market. And it's, I don't think it's often the agency or the marketing agency per se. There are just some clients who their data principles are, well, you know, let's, it's in our interest to not immediately merge and purge our data and to do suppression immediately. Or, or some clients just don't have the budget. They they just don't have the infrastructure, even though the tools are available to do that. So there's often a delay in data. But I've seen many companies um, who who I've personally taken on about this because I'll go, hey, hang on a moment. We've tried to opt out of this newsletter, or you know, I don't want to be called. You know, why are you guys calling me? Uh, I've I've registered not to be called. Uh, and they'll go, oh 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 yes, we've got it, and, and they'll say, oh, it, it'll take us a week to suppress you. And then a week later comes and that suppression's never happened. Yeah. So, so there is a lot of just really poor, really poor best practice.
3: So what would you recommend somebody do? Is it make it super simple at the opt-in? Is it? Yeah,
0: make it super simple. Automate, automate it to the best of your ability. So the burden. It doesn't sit on the end user or on the customer. And actually, this is a lot of the customer experience design work we do is we track the positive and negative and the emotional experiences of people through the entire, uh, the whole experience of the customer. So we'll show clients like, you know, the, the issue might be a bad unboxing experience or the issue might be it's actually difficult to opt out of your communications. yeah, Or, or the issue is um, actually they just want to sup- stop their subscription and be dormant Respect that, do it as quickly as possible, because guess what? It's going to be easier for you to win them back as a client down the road. Um, and that's why I talk about that point about being personally relevant. If you really want to be personally relevant, do it on the customer's terms, not on yours. So the point you've talked about are often companies who design their marketing communications, their data principles, their, it gets down to merge purge, cleaning data on their on their terms, based on their financial metrics and not those of the customer. Uh, and the companies who are very thoughtful about this and have thought it through are the other are brands right now that are actually winning in the marketplace and gaining share uh, and disrupting um, so so it's such a simple point, but so few people really get it uh, and, and and take that as they as they as the organizing principle uh, around their customers
3: yeah so so much about values and culture what can you do versus what should you do but let's let's go back to what is your favorite alternative data source. So you have your data you capture internally. What's your favorite alternative data source?
0: So, so I love it when we can use as many interesting exogenous data sources for our clients as possible in, in combination with some interesting qual data and and some additional quant. So, so let me unpack that a little bit, right? So when we bring these things together, and, and by the way, this is an amazing time to be a person in marketing data because i I was always a bit worried about the the big the the rise of big data because i i could see how clients are just struggling with the data they already had yeah um forget it
3: they can't (laughs) mine their internal data and now we want to bring in all this unstructured semi-structured external data
0: completely but we've we've done some amazing things where we'll use unstructured data from social channels and from keyword search trend data but now we would map it with things like uh, weather data air pollution pollen data uh, to get new insights for our clients in terms of potential demand for their products and do kind of more uh, real-time demand-based forecasting off the back of that. Um, we've even used some of these data variables to help our clients rethink customer lifetime value just because they can actually think and understand their customers differently and the variables that actually influence value at the most simple levels. So and you think about it this way, because, uh, you know, data computing costs have gone down so much. In the past, our clients were limited with how long they could store data and how they could use it or introduce additional data sources. But because computing costs are so low, things like customer lifetime value in the past, a big part of the conversation with our clients was, what time frame do we measure value over? Is it just this quarter? Is it a year? Is it two years worth of sales data? Is it three, four, five? We can take a far longer view on that now because of, because of big data and machine learning and artificial intelligence. So just yeah. that alone is fun work at the moment because we're completely rewriting that or, or using AI uh, and experimentation to do rapid mass experimentation that goes way beyond AB testing and multivariate testing. So that works a hell of a lot of fun. But the real area that I enjoy the most is where we do a lot of what we call kind of motivational segmentation and, and think about it's kind of the cognitive sciences of the work we do. A lot of the decisions we make every day is based on intuition. It's based on instinct. It's often irrational. We're not we're not as rational as we think. You know, is that's that systems one thinking from Daniel Kahneman. You know that we've just. I built was gonna a whole, say,
3: yeah, makes no sense.
0: <laughs> but, <you> know, <laughs> we don't behave. A, yeah, we don't behave, and we've built a whole practice around that. So, 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 how do we? Because one thing that that stays of people's values, your personal values are more consistent. The emotions behind those values might change. So trying to help and understand that for our clients. So we would often do that with small one-on-one interviews with a small group of people, and then we'd get an insight.
3: Focus groups.
0: Focus groups, good old focus groups, right? And then we'd go and run a survey to test that further. And then we would go to the world of big data and AI and use all this unstructured data, and we'd model that out further using our clients' first-body data and their CRM data. And we'll use all these other data sources to say, okay, we're onto something. We think these are the values that your customers in this segment and this group uh, find most important. These are all the emotional, ca- uh, you know, um, um, emotions associated with that value. But your brand is talking a completely different language. So change just yeah. your tone, change your your engagement um, strategy. Uh, just this morning, I had a conversation with... Um, some of my team, where, where one of our clients um, asked us, saying in this world of COVID-19 and this recessionary market we're going in, we were massively into sports sponsorship. Um, and we were massively into sponsoring in kind of, for example, in Formula One racing. Uh, we don't think that's appropriate right now. Uh, and, and unfortunately, I can't tell you the brand or the category. But we had to immediately say to the client, but do you think that this matches the values and what is driving your customers' day-to-day reality? And and the answer, without us even doing the research, was blatantly, you shouldn't be doing that anymore. But now we're going to have to use the data to back it up and do the hypothesis and and, and show that to the client. So that works really fun because it kind of gets into the world of behavioral economics, which is good territory for for us in in marketing to help our clients with because there's such a lack of... Um, understanding and, and maturity around that. So, so that, that's a lot of fun work, Cindy.
3: Yeah. Oh, it's fascinating. Um, and you mentioned an author that I also like, Daniel Kahneman. Who do you read or who do you listen to on podcasts? Give me your top two.
0: Oh my gosh i listen to so many podcasts um i listen to one called linear digressions i listen to one called data skeptics i know i listen to your podcast by the way oh
3: I, thank you i, I didn't I want to ask to, no i've
0: listened <laughs> i've listened to three episodes just this last week and they're fantastic so it's 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 wonderful to be on it but um thank you. i also i i i turn back to to Lester Wonderman's uh, book that he wrote being direct quite a lot because a lot of what he wrote, you know, 30 years ago is still so relevant. And there was an update a few years ago. Um, we've got a lot of his writings in the agency, which we also still refer to. But I, but I, what I also willfully do is I read from, um, categories and industries outside of my own, because I think that's where you get a lot of the additional insights is the danger that you, go into kind of a thought falter and a falter bubble. Um,
3: Jacques, is this your div- mm. your value of diversity of thought coming out? Well,
0: diversity of thoughts really important.
3: I know, but did you know I care that much about it? No,
0: I didn't. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad I'm saying the right things.
3: <laughs> no, no, no. Argue mm. with me. Argue with me. No, it's 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 tough. You know, it's hard. We, we look at gender, race, age, ethnicity as the visible thing that... We think is a proxy for diversity of thought that is mm. important in AI. Or, or mm. let me. So, le- do mm. you think it's becoming more important in, in a data-driven world, in an AI world?
0: Yeah, yeah. We we're very worried about this. Um, so, actually, we've set up an in- inclusivity practice within Wanham and Thompson, which is doing some phenomenal work, and I, I'm so proud of the work that they do. There, it's headed up by Christina Mallon, an amazing. An amazing talent, and I'll give you an example of some. Uh, I'll, I'll plug one client here quickly because the work was so breakthrough. They worked with Tommy Hilfiger to develop Tommy Adaptive Clothing, and that that's about clothing for for people who are not able-bodied. Who you know, they might be in a wheelchair, just getting in and out of your clothing is different, or they 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 might have lost a limb. So does, to design clothing that looks good, feels good, but is easy to to wear, nobody's actually ever looked at that group and said. This is a huge business opportunity. And it's actually in our interest to speak with these people. But what what we very quickly learned, again, through qualitative insight and having somebody like Christina, who's so passionate about it, lead it as a as a thought expert, was that community is a saying, nothing about us without us. Uh, I might have gotten that wrong. But what they basically say is don't talk to us without us being part of that conversation. Don't talk at us. Don't feel sorry for us, right? And, and the work we did there was just amazing. And that got us really thinking about data as well and, and bias in data. And, and a lot of clients are so at risk of just using the data they've always had in a specific way. And they could miss a whole market segment. You know, they they might not have, if you're in clothing, for example, you might have thought about really thinking about inclusivity and people are not able-bodied as a market segment, uh, and that, that market segment's worth billions. Yeah. So 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 be thoughtful about how you think about that segment, but engage them and do it on their terms and then go after that market. And I think Tommy Adaptive's done an amazing job there and they they've got an incredible following. But they're also now seeing benefit to their mainstream clothing outside of Adaptive because people who buy Adaptive are also buying non-Adaptive clothing. And that's the benefit of doing good thinking well applying data in the right way through simple insights. So you know, so that's one example, um, Cindy, if yeah, that makes sense.
3: It absolutely does. Diversity of data, diversity of thought, and now doing good. So like we could talk another half hour on data for good, but I wanna be respectful of your time. So I'm oh, gonna thanks, end with um one question, if if you're willing. You know, tr- truly I-, I think it's it's very genuine when people say what are you grateful for? It's health, it's family. But if you think beyond that, what are you grateful for, Jacques?
0: You know, I think um, I'm grateful for the opportunities that I think we often take for granted every day when we go to work. You know, I, I catch myself sometimes where I'm in the middle of some data crisis, right? Or I'm in the middle of some really difficult and complex task. But then just pausing for a moment and being mindful and going, going actually, This is pretty interesting work. This is pretty cutting-edge stuff, right? Uh, Just always bringing it back to a common vision of moving forward, trying to, working with good people, doing good work, trying to do the best work of our careers at any point in time. And reminding myself and our team of that vision and being able to lead that vision for my team is just the most amazing privilege ever. And and I really get a kick out of seeing my teams do great work i I can't, I can't tell you how exciting that is for me just to see the team come in and say we've just built for example a few, a few years ago we built um and it's it's quite relevant in this day and age for for, for glaxo smith klein and theraflu we built a flu tracker in mexico where swine flu were killing hundreds of people and we had seven years worth of epidemiological data and we and we worked that and we modeled it and we pulled all kinds of other data sources in and we could all of a sudden, where it took them a month to predict the outbreak of swine flu, we helped them predict it within 24 hours with 97% accuracy. Just that work. Uh, yeah. Is just, it's just when the work is beautiful, it's beautiful. But it's the labor and the pain and the effort that you shouldn't let it get you down. Because when the work adds value and it moves clients and teams and people for good, that that's an amazing thing.
3: That really is so well said. My three takeaways, Jacques, I think our data is oxygen, not oil. I love that tagline. Diversity of thought and a culture of curiosity. Really organizing everything around customer for great customer experience. Thank you so much, Jacques.
0: Thank you, Sand. It's been an absolute
1: pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or listen to more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout on Twitter at BIScorecard.
2: The Data Chief is brought to you by our friends at ThoughtSpot. Searching through your company's data for insights doesn't have to be complicated. ThoughtSpot makes it easy. With ThoughtSpot, anyone in your organization can easily answer their own data questions, find facts, and make better, faster decisions. Learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.